Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. They understood that this was this was the beginning of some major, major changes in the 13 colonies. And maybe they didn't know that it would ultimately lead to independence, but maybe a couple of them did. And well, I guess we'll never really know. <laughs> That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Dane Rue discussing the Sons of Liberty in Connecticut. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Dane Rue, discussing the history consequences, and actions of the Sons of Liberty in Connecticut. This is a really, I guess, wonderful interview for a number of reasons. One of them for me, as we'll hear from Dane Rue today, is sort of uh, maybe uh, an exercise in political achievement and political tactics. You know, we live in a world today where our politics is very reactionary. Uh, it's frustrating and downright infuriating at times. But one of the things we do, and social media helps this, is find someone who does something scandalous or terrible, uh, maybe something that's not illegal but certainly unethical, and we just, I guess, collectively swarm them into resignation as a society, deservedly or not. And a lot of people get angry because they think this is a new phenomenon. It's really not. Dane Rue does a really great job of showing how groups like the Sons of Liberty did this exact same thing uh, 250 years ago. So I think it's very illustrative to show just how far we've come and maybe how much we're using the same old playbook. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Dane Rue. Dane Rue. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us about your background. Certainly. Um, I have lived in Connecticut my entire life. I was born and raised in the city of Groton. And for the past few years, I've been living as a resident of Norwich, Connecticut. Um, I completed my degrees in American studies from University of Connecticut, and then a degree in museum studies from Johns Hopkins University. So my background um, concentrates primarily in the field of museum education, as well as object-based storytelling. So I've been in the museum industry for the better part of the last 10 years, and that's led to my current positions as Director of Education for Slater Memorial Museum here in Norwich, as well as president of the Society of the Founders of Norwich that owns and operates the local Leffingwell House Museum, which is right here in town. So I've had a pretty much a lifelong love of history, and uh, it's been defining my life ever since. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Yes, the this topic was really born out of a program that I first delivered probably five years ago now um, when I was a newly installed board member of the Society of the Founders of Norwich. We were looking for ways to create some new programs that would bring in new visitors and new audiences. And one of them was a program on the 4th of July that I first gave. And I honestly don't recall who suggested this or how it got suggested, but we ultimately decided to talk about what Norwich, Connecticut was like during the revolutionary era and more specifically incorporate some stories about this group known as the Sons of Liberty. And at the time, I was familiar with the Sons of Liberty. I had read quite a few books on them and some articles before. But um, what was new to me, which was news to me at the time, was that not only were the Sons of Liberty active in Connecticut, but they were right here in Norwich. And that kind of blew my mind at the time. I, I honestly was just not aware of that. And so as I started digging more into this realization and researching more, we just kept adding more content and more new features to this program year after year on the 4th of July. And it got to a point a couple years ago where I realized I had so much content on my hands that I need to start writing it down and, and to find out if this has been written about already. And it turns out there has been material written on the subject, but some of it was dated. Some of it was um, uh, hadn't been updated in some time. So it, it really motivated me to just break open, break open this topic of the Sons of Liberty in Connecticut uh, on, on a little more deeper level and, and bring this to a, a current contemporary audience. And so this, um, this past year, when the pandemic hit, it, it kind of kicked me in gear to really finish the article because I've been working, working on it on and off for the past couple of years. So just this past year is when I was truly motivated to get it finished. What was Connecticut like in the 1760s? Connecticut was an industrious place to be back then. We had thriving seaports. We were manufacturing iron, paper. Uh, we had thriving homespun industries. It was, it was really qu quite an industrious place to be. That, that's always the expression that just comes to my, come to my mind. Um, we had widespread agricultural and agrarian societies. And, and the, people, the people here in Connecticut were quintessential New England Yankees. <laughs> and and the, uh, the article goes into some detail as to uh, how industrious these, uh, these particular individuals were. Um, one thing I will I will say is during the early 1800s, Connecticut earned this nickname called the Land of Steady Habits, <laughs> and that is a hundred percent true in almost every sense of the phrase, because we had earned this reputation of being a very orderly society. We knew what we wanted and didn't really deviate too much from the norm. And that was the way we liked it, <laughs> ultimately. Um, our, our current state historian, Walt Woodward, actually talks about this topic. He wrote um, an article several years ago um, regarding this, 
moniker, the, the land of steady habits. And he had mentioned in, in his article that Connecticut had this uh, tradition of reelecting the same people to uh, positions of, of political power. And some might argue that has not really changed that much today, which I find pretty interesting. But uh, we, uh, we definitely earned that nickname. And there's, there's no bones about it, that's for sure. How did the Sons of Liberty initially come to form in Connecticut? It's important to remember that the Sons of Liberty as an organization is not operating on, on a central authority. These organizations do not have a, a real centralized authority governing where uh, members are operating and what they're doing. Uh, these are loosely organized um, independent factions of people that are united against a co- or, or united for a common cause. In this case, it was against the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765. So in Connecticut, for example, a, a, a few notable leaders of the Sons of Liberty were very well connected, politically speaking. And, and a lot of the early correspondence and activities um, suggest that you know, they were really able to enlist and recruit specific individuals that may have had certain skill sets and, uh, and certain advantages in getting out communication as well as organizing and, and rallying certain people. So during the summer of 1765, we're starting to see some of that organization occur. So it's not entirely planned and it's not entirely spontaneous either. So very important to remember. Could you tell us about some of its major leaders? Certainly. The um, Here in Connecticut, there's, there's a couple of names that stand out among the rest, although each of them contribute in different ways. Um, probably just, just on name recognition alone, probably the most famous names at the time would have been Israel Putnam um, and Benedict Arnold. Um, and even in terms of um, current day name recognition, those names definitely stand out. Um, Israel Putnam was very well connected to all of the leading figures here in Connecticut, the, the you know, very well connected families, and, um, and was a legend uh, in and of himself. Uh, people knew who he was, and they were familiar with, with his actions. And uh, Benedict Arnold was also very, very well known um, here in Norwich and throughout the region known for different reasons, of course. Um, but um, the other leader who takes a central role in this article is John Durkee. John Durkee, originally born in Wyndham, he moves to Norwich when he becomes an adult. And he is a standout figure amongst Connecticut son- the Connecticut Sons of Liberty because of the actions he actually takes. He's, he earns this recognition as a leader of the movement from Connecticut, from the community, and uh, and was really the perfect person to lead uh, to lead individuals. He had that experience being in the military and leading uh, leading uh, uh, men in the French and Indian War. So he uh, he he assumed the active the active role of the Sons of Liberty. Others such as Israel Putnam and um, and and a few other um, few other names. They may have had uh, not just not necessarily passive roles, but maybe more behind the scenes roles 
Some were specifically orators, such as um, Reverend Stephen Johnson. He certainly organized, um, galvanized uh, support against the Stamp Act down in the Lyme region of Connecticut. Um, but John Durkee is the one who takes center stage and actually physically leading actions against these specific targets that the Sons of Liberty go after during this crisis. One of the great benefits of being a part of a group like this or having a group like this is that you have a coordinated reaction. Uh, how did this group react to the Stamp Act? Yep. So as I mentioned before, this this activity we're seeing from the Sons of Liberty is 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 not is 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 not centrally run. It's also not spontaneous either. But what the Sons do here in Connecticut is once the the members of the Sons um, have organized themselves into this uh, into this body of individuals. They come up with three very specific objectives, and and it's also again important to remember that this organization known as the Sons of Liberty evolves as a movement that's directly in response to the Stamp Act. So the the goal overall is to ultimately get the act repealed. Um, here in Connecticut the Connecticut Suns focus on three specific objectives that they all can work together and organize themselves to, uh, to accomplish. Um, one of them is to prevent the distribution of stamps in Connecticut. The second being to um, galvanize public opposition to the act. And um, the third is to remove their political opponents from power. And there was a number of different ways that they did that. They could have accomplished that through, um, targeted printed works. Um, we would see propaganda pieces. Um, we would see um, all sorts of public speeches and public forums on this topic. Um, so, but again, very crucial to bear in mind that this is all very loose. This is a very loose organization. It's by by standards such as the British. It's it's they're very crude methods. <laughs> it's not at all like the very well coordinated systems that um, that the British would have had implemented at the time. One of the things we see today uh, is sort of this idea that, you know, a person does something unsavory or untoward, maybe that's not illegal, but is probably unethical. And you have a mass call on, in this case, social media for their resignation. That sounds like a new thing. It actually isn't. Uh, the Sons of Liberty use that exact same tactic. Could you tell us how? Certainly, this is another great example of how how history hasn't really changed that much. Um, we're we're still employing some of the very same tactics that we see in the present day. If we're if we're looking to make a very strong uh, political statement on a on a given topic, um, what we're seeing in Boston, for example, is the complete opposite of what we're seeing here in Connecticut. It's one of the things that. Um, that surprised me. It might surprise other people. Um, one of the one of the mischaracterizations of the Sons of Liberty is that this is a body of individuals that is just a, a simple angry mob, and they and they were responsible for uh, wanton destruction and mayhem all throughout the colonies. It, it, it's completely untrue. Um, we did see. We certainly did see some mob type violence, particularly in Boston, but this was not widespread throughout the colonies. And Connecticut is a is a perfect example of that. 
Um, again, Connecticut being <laughs> being a, a colony of citizens who know what they want and know what they want to accomplish, they outlined, again, those three specific objectives. So in order to accomplish those objectives, they had to identify specific targets. <laughs> and those were the stamp masters, the stamp agents. And so with that being said, their tar- the target in Connecticut is Jared Ingersoll. Jared Ingersoll is not a British is not a British citizen. He's born in Connecticut. His family's been here in Connecticut. So it's not like we're operating against officials that are born and bred in England. We're all organizing and working with people that are our own neighbors, our own friends and and families that have been here for many, many years. That's that's a, that's an important thing to bear in mind. And with uh with Jared Ingersoll he is uh, his family and he himself are, are staunchly loyal to the British. They're very loyal to uh, to the British crown as well as loyal to their positions. And so there was a couple of a uh, couple of ways the Sons of Liberty tried to um, employ some intimidation tactics uh, against people like Ingersoll and others uh, throughout the throughout different colonies. For example, up in Boston. Andrew Oliver, who was a stamp agent, they had uh, burned a, they burned effigies of him. They uh, targeted his home, ransacked his property. They uh, they looted property from him. Uh, there was there was a lot of action being taken against him. And he writes to Jared Ingersoll um, that summer, basically saying to him, "You know, you're you're no stranger to what's." what's happening up here. And, and I don't have to go into detail of what's been happening to me. And if you're not careful, this is going to happen to you. And Ingersoll initially was kind of probably a bit dismissive of this. He, he really wanted to stay the course. Um, but the same types of things began happening here in Connecticut. Like a day after uh, Andrew Oliver sent that letter to, uh, to Ingersoll, the, uh, the citizens of Norwich burned an effigy of Jared Ingersoll on the green. Um, and then we saw other towns doing the exact same thing. So whether it was public demonstrations of burning of burning tax collectors in effigy, or perhaps um, making uh, making fiery speeches, or printing or printing opposition pieces in um, in print ads, this, this was all designed to be uh, coordinated intimidation tactics to persuade, to aggressively coerce these individuals to resign their positions, but um, it, they had to take it a step further with Ingersoll. So uh, John Durkee and, uh, and the Sons of Liberty had recruited about, um, reports say as maybe as few as 500, but maybe as many as 1,000 men that intercepted Ingersoll in Weathersfield as he was on his way to Hartford to bring his case before the governor. And they confined him. <laughs> they kept him confined in a nearby tavern and made it very clear to him that, listen, we're, we're, got, we're organizing a movement against this act. And you, 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 have, you have one of two choices. You can either continue this position or you can work with us. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, and he ultimately chose the latter, which, uh, which may have saved him from some further, uh, some further harassment and intimidation, but it never went as far in Connecticut as it did in Boston. Um, the correspondence that we see between members of the Connecticut Sons state very clearly 
that this was to be an orderly movement and that they were to operate as much within the, the, uh, the, the current and established laws as possible. They were not about to dissolve into, into anarchy. That was the complete opposite of what they wanted to achieve. So ultimately, um, ultimately, again, they, they really wanted to, they wanted this movement to be characterized by, by, by careful, deliberate action. That was very important to them. Things will really change, according to your article, during the siege of Boston, the role the Sons of Liberty in Connecticut play will change. Uh, how did they respond to the siege? Absolutely, I I wanted to include that section about um, about how Connecticut responded to this to, to the siege of Boston because even though the Sons of Liberty, the organization formed as uh, formed in response to the Stamp Act. When the Stamp Act was ultimately repealed in 1766, the Sons of Liberty didn't just disappear. They, they, they were still here. Um, there was still work to be done. And so that period from 1765 up until 1775 is, is really the entire story here, especially for, um, especially for my article. And, and everything changed uh, once the year 1774 hit. Um, this was this is a great way of illustrating how the uh, how the residents of Connecticut, the Sons of Liberty, and their sympathizers um, recognize the fact that we're we're now all of a sudden caught up in something much bigger than uh, than uh, than a tax that we're trying to uh, el- eliminate. Um, th- this is this is the beginning of a much larger movement, and they recognize that. If we're going to continue to fight for what we believe in, we need to help and assist those that need that need our help. And that and that, and, and and that was what they did. And um, in Boston, when when the Boston port was closed uh, in June of 1774, all of a sudden we're starting to see rampant starvation. Um, disease is going to be spreading very quickly, and the Sons of Liberty leaders, including Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and others, they send out communications to their contacts in Connecticut, um, to New York, Rhode Island, and other colonies requesting aid. Um, they're, they're desperate for aid. And Connecticut responds as about as immediate as you could for the time. Um, this was June when the port was closed, and the citizens of Norwich held their fir- held the first uh, meeting to discuss what to do in June. Um, they decided we're, we're going to form our own committee of correspondence to um, to interface with uh, with Boston's committees, and we're go- and then we're going to communicate with other uh, committees throughout Connecticut as well, so that we can recruit others to obtain supplies, obtain food and provisions so that we can send them to Boston and help our, uh, our brothers and sisters that are, that are so desperate um, for aid. Um, the first committee meeting I mentioned in the article, the first committee meeting that was held in Norwich was to be slated on the first Monday in July. And that just happened to be July 4th. <laughs> it's a complete coincidence that that happened. And, and like I said, it, the response was, about as immediate as it could have been for the time, given um, delays in communication and, and things like that. It, it's pretty remarkable how quickly 
that uh, that they responded. So the, that was you know, June, getting into July. The first shipments of um, of livestock and provisions had made it to Boston right around the middle of August uh, 1774. So very very quick turnaround time, given the circumstances. You mentioned that the Connecticut Sons of Liberty were ahead of their time. Uh, how so? Sure. Yep. I, I I mentioned it a bit before, but I'll expand upon it a little bit. Um, there, there's a few letters that I've read in my um, in my research that that stand out to me the most. And what I mean by that is some of the language that is used by the Sons of Liberty here in Connecticut when they're communicating to other groups of the Sons of Liberty. They're they're using language and they're conveying. Um, they're conveying thoughts and ideas that's framed around a much larger context. These, these men somehow knew in 1765, 1766, that this crisis, this stamp act was not going to be the begin was, was only the beginning that this was, this was only the beginning of what was going to be a much larger movement. And up until 1765, as I mentioned before Connecticut is is considered to be a relatively stable and orderly society, not one to buck tradition. But after 1765 and going into 1766, everything changes in Connecticut. The sons were the sons were responsible for ushering in a completely new political administration in Connecticut that takes the colony from you know, what they were a hunt for the past hundred years, almost into a new era of revolutionary leadership. It's, it's amazing how in such a short amount of time they were able to, they were able to just flip the political administration here in Connecticut completely on its head. And, and again, they, they really did recognize that, that this was going to be something that was part of a much larger movement. Um, I mentioned it at the end of my article that one of the letters, the Sons of Liberty in Norwich write to um, the Providence Sons of Liberty. It's almost like they, they completely, it's almost like they looked 10 years into the future um, and, and just took some passages out of the Declaration of Independence and paraphrased them because they're, they're literally using the same words. They're saying, we will pledge our lives and our fortunes um, against a treacherous ministry, against a treacherous ministry, it, it's it's like they they've just lifted those passages right out of the Declaration of Independence, and and that wouldn't that wouldn't happen for again another ten years. So that would that really stood out to me. Um, it's just the fact that they they understood that this was this was the beginning of some major major changes in the thirteen colonies, and maybe they didn't know that it would ultimately lead to independence, but Maybe a couple of them did. Well, I guess we'll never really know. <laughs> Dane Rue, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be a part of this. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.